My beloved brethren and sisters, seen and unseen, and we are all brothers and sisters, children of the same Father in the Spirit. Humbly and gratefully I stand before you on this anniversary date of the organization of the Restored Church of Jesus Christ 142 years ago. I love a general conference of the Church, except this particular part. And yet I rejoice in the opportunity to bear testimony to this, the greatest work in all the world. Last fall, I was invited by Baron von Blumberg, President, United Religions Organization, to represent the Church as a guest of the King of Persia at the 2500th anniversary of the founding of the Persian Empire by Cyrus the Great. Advised by the First Presidency to accept the invitation, I left immediately following the October conference to join with representatives of 27 world religions, some 50 monarchs and other notables at this historic celebration in Iran. King Cyrus lived more than 500 years before Christ and figured in the prophecies of the Old Testament mentioned in Second Chronicles and the Book of Ezra and by the prophets Ezekiel, Isaiah, and Daniel. The Bible states how the Lord stirred up the spirit of King Cyrus of Persia. Cyrus restored certain political and social rights to the captive Hebrews and gave them permission to return to Jerusalem and directed that Jehovah's temple should there be rebuilt. Parley P. Pratt, in describing the prophet Joseph Smith, said that he had the boldness, courage, temperance, perseverance, and generosity of a Cyrus. President Wilfred Woodruff said, Now I have thought many times that some of those ancient kings that were raised up had in some respects more regard for the carrying out of some of these basic principles and laws than even the Latter-day Saints have in our day. I will take as an ensample Cyrus. To trace the life of Cyrus from his birth to his death, whether he knew it or not, it looked as though he lived by inspiration in all his movements. He began with that temperance and virtue which would sustain any Christian country or any Christian king. Many of these principles followed him, and I have thought many of them were worthy, in many respects, the attention of men who have the gospel of Jesus Christ. God, the Father of us all, uses the men of the earth, especially good men, to accomplish his purposes. It has been true in the past. It is true today. It will be true in the future. Perhaps the Lord needs such men on the outside of his church to help it along, said the late Orson F. Whitney. They're among its auxiliaries and can do more good for the cause where the Lord has placed them than anywhere else. Hence, some are drawn into the fold and receive a testimony of the truth, while others remain unconverted, the beauties and glories of the gospel being veiled temporarily from their view for a wise purpose. The Lord will open their eyes in his own due time. God is using more than one people for the accomplishment of his great and marvelous work. The Latter-day Saints cannot do it all. 
It is too vast, too arduous for any one people. We have no quarrel with the Gentiles. They are our partners in a certain sense. We love all of our Father's children. We invite them all to assist in this great effort. This would certainly have been true of Colonel Thomas L. Kane, a true friend of the saints in their dire need. It was true of General Donovan, who, when ordered by his superior to shoot and kill Joseph Smith, said, It is cold-blooded murder. I will not obey your order. And if you execute these men, I will hold you responsible before an earthly tribunal, so help me God. We honor these partners because of their devotion to correct principles, overshadowed overshadowed their devotion to popularity, party, or personalities. We honor our founding fathers of this republic for the same reason. God raised up these patriot partners to perform their mission, and he called them wise men. The First Presidency acknowledged that wisdom when they gave us the guideline a few years ago for supporting political candidates. Quote, who are truly dedicated to the Constitution in the tradition of the Founding Fathers. That tradition has been well summarized in the book, The American Tradition by Clarence Carson. The Lord said that the children of this world are in their generation wiser than the children of light. Our wise founders seem to understand better than most of us our own scripture, which states, It is the nature and disposition of almost all men. As soon as they get a little authority, they will immediately begin to exercise unrighteous dominion. To help pre prevent this, the Founders knew that our elected leaders should be bound by certain fixed principles. Said Thomas Jefferson, In questions of power, then, let no more be heard of confidence in man, but bind him down from mischief by the chains of the Constitution. These wise founders, our patriotic partners, seem to appreciate more than most of us the blessings of the boundaries which the Lord set within the Constitution. For he said, and as pertaining to law of man, whatsoever is more or less than this cometh of evil. In God the founders trusted, and in his Constitution, not in the arm of flesh. O Lord, said Nephi, I have trusted in thee, and I will trust in thee forever. I will not put my trust in the arm of flesh. Cursed is he that putteth his trust in man, or maketh flesh his arm. President J. Reuben Clark put it well when he said, God provided that in this land of liberty our political allegiance shall run not to individuals, that is, to government officials, no matter how great or how small they may be. Under his plan, our allegiance and the only allegiance we owe as citizens or denizens of the United States runs to our inspired Constitution, which God himself set up. So runs the oath of office of those who participate in government. A certain loyalty we do owe to the office which a man holds, but even here we owe just by reason of our citizenship no loyalty to the man himself. In many other countries, 
It is to the individual that allegiance runs. This principle of allegiance to the Constitution is basic to our freedom. It is one of the great principles that distinguishes this land of liberty from many other countries. Patriotism, said Theodore Roosevelt, means to stand by the country. It does not mean to stand by the president or any other public official save exactly to the degree in which he himself stands by the country. Every man, said Roosevelt, who parrots the cry of stand by the president without adding the proviso so far as he serves the republic, takes an attitude as essentially unmanly, unmanly as that of any Stuart royalist who championed the doctor, doctrine that the king could do no wrong. No self-respecting and intelligent free man could take such an attitude. And yet, as Latter-day Saints, we pray for our civic leaders and encourage them in their righteousness. To vote for wicked men, it would be a sin, said Hiram Smith. And the Prophet Joseph Smith said, Let the people of the whole Union, like the inflexible Romans, Whenever they find a promise made by a candidate that is not practiced as an officer, hurl the miserable sycophant from his exaltation. Joseph and Harm's trust did not run to the arm of flesh, but to God and eternal correct principles. I am the greatest advocate of the Constitution of the United States there is on earth, said the prophet Joseph Smith. The warning of President Joseph Fielding Smith is most timely. He said, Now I tell you, it is time the people of the United States were waking up with the understanding that if they don't save the Constitution from the dangers that threaten it, we will have a change of government. Another guideline given by the First Presidency was to support good and conscientious candidates of either party who are aware of the great dangers inherent in communism. The position of this church on the subject of communism has never changed. We consider it the greatest satanical threat to the peace, prosperity, and spread of God's work among men that exists on the face of the earth. Fortunately, we have materials to help us face this, great, uh, this threat, such as President McKay's booklet of Statements on Communism and the Constitution of the United States, Leon Skousen's book, The Naked Communist, which we were advised to read, other, some other fine books by LDS authors attempting to awaken and inform us of our duty, or such as Prophets, Principles, and National Survival. Many are called, but few are chosen, and the elders of Israel and the Constitution. But the greatest handbook for freedom in this fight against communism and other evils is the Book of Mormon. This leads me to the second great civic standard for the saints. For in addition to our inspired Constitution, we have the Scriptures. Joseph Smith said that the Book of Mormon was the keystone of our religion and the most correct book on earth. This most correct book on earth states that the downfall of two great American civilizations came as a result of secret conspiracies whose desire was to overthrow the freedom of the people. And they have caused the destruction of this people of whom I have 
Now, uh, of whom I am now speaking, says Moroni, and also the destruction of the people of Dephi. Now, undoubtedly, Moroni could have pointed out many factors that led to the destruction of the people. But notice how he singled out the secret combinations, just as the church today could point out many threats to peace, prosperity, and the spread of God's work, but it has singled out the greatest threat as the great conspiracy. There is no conspiracy theory in the Book of Mormon. It is a conspiracy fact. And along this line, I would highly recommend to you a new book entitled None Dare Call It, Conspiracy by Gary Allen. Then Moroni speaks to us in this day and says, Wherefore, the Lord commandeth you, when ye shall see these things come among you, that ye shall awake to a sense of your awful situation, because this secret combination which shall be among you. The Book of Mormon further warns that whatever nation shall uphold such secret combinations to get power and gain until they shall spread over the nation, behold, they shall be destroyed. That scripture should alert us to what's ahead unless we repent, because there is no question but that our nation is increasingly upholding the communist conspiracy today. By court edict, communists can run for government office, teach in our schools, hold office in labor unions, work in our defense plants, serve in our merchant marines, and so forth. As a nation, we are helping, it would seem, to underwrite communist revolutionaries in our country. Now, we are assured that the Church will remain on earth until the Lord comes again. But at what price? The saints in the early days were assured that Zion would be established in Jackson County. But look what their unfaithfulness cost them in bloodshed and delay. President Clark warned us that we stand in danger of losing our liberties and that once lost, only blood will bring them back. And once lost, we of this Church will, in order to keep the Church going forward, have more sacrifices to make and more persecutions to endure than we have yet known. And he stated that if communism comes here, it will probably come in its full vigor, and there will be a lot of vacant places among those who guide and direct not only this government, but also this Church of ours." Unquote. Now, the third great civic standard for the saints is the inspired words of the prophets, particularly the living president, God's mouthpiece on the earth today whom we heard at the opening of this conference this morning. We must keep our eye on the captain and judge the words of all others by his inspired counsel. The story is told how Brigham Young, driving through a community, saw a man building a house and simply told him to double the thickness of his walls. Accepting President Young as a prophet, the man changed his plans and doubled the walls. Shortly afterward, a flood came through the town, resulting in much destruction. But this man's wall stood. While putting the roof on his house, he was heard singing, We thank thee, O God, for a prophet. <laughs> Joseph Smith taught that a prophet was a prophet only when he was acting as such. Suppose a leader of the Church were to tell you that you were supporting the wrong side of a particular issue. 
Some might immediately resist this leader and his counsel or ignore it. But I would suggest that you first apply the fourth great civic standard for the faithful saints. That standard is to live far, to get, and then to follow the promptings of the Holy Spirit. Said Brigham Young, I am more afraid that this people have so much confidence in their leaders that they will not inquire for themselves of God whether they are led by him. Let every man and woman know by the whisperings of the Spirit of God to themselves whether their leaders are walking in the path of the Lord, path the Lord dictates or not. A number of years ago, because of a statement which appeared to represent the policy of the Church, a faithful member feared he was supporting the wrong candidate for public office. Humbly, he took the matter up to the Lord. Through the Spirit of the Lord, he gained the conviction of the course he should follow, and he dropped his support of this particular candidate. This good brother, by fervent prayer, got his answer, which time proved to be the right course. We urge all men to read the Book of Mormon and then ask God if it is true. And the promise is sure. They may know of its truthfulness through the Holy Ghost. And as a Book of Mormon prophet has declared, by the power of the Holy Ghost men may know the truth of all things. We need the constant guiding, guidance of, the, of that spirit. We live in an age of deceit. O oh, my people, said Isaiah in the Book of Mormon, they who lead thee cause thee to err and destroy the way of thy paths. Even within the church, we have been warned that ravening wolves are amongst us from our own membership, and they more than any others are clothed in sheep's clothing because they wear the habiliments of the priesthood. The Lord holds us accountable as members of his church if we are not wise and are deceived. For they that are wise, said the Lord, and have received the truth, and have taken the Holy Spirit for their guide, and have not been deceived, verily I say unto you, they shall not be hewn down and cast into the fire, but shall abide the day. And so we may say there are four great civic standards for the faithful Latter-day Saints as follows. First, the Constitution ordained by God through wise men are the principles embodied therein. Second, the Scriptures, particularly the Book of Mormon. Third, the inspired counsel of the prophets, especially the living president. And fourth, the guidance of the Holy Spirit. God bless us all that we may use these standards and by so doing bless ourselves, our families, our community, our nation, and the world. I humbly pray as I bear my solemn witness to the truth of this great Latter-day work
In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. First of all, my brothers and sisters, let me assure you that as far as Al Rael Christiansen is concerned, God lives. And he is a compassionate, understanding father. And that his son, Jesus Christ, came to earth, as the story tells us in the Bible, and offered himself and gave his life that we might be redeemed from the grave and might have eternal life salvation, and to us that means exaltation in the celestial world. Now, this is a world in difficulty and trouble, but we shouldn't merely bemoan the fact. We should, as far as our powers can help us to do, be anxiously engaged, engaged in rectifying it. And just before we sang, I wrote this down. If you and I are to help restore this sick world to its spiritual health, we must begin at the proper place, that is, with ourselves and with our families. That we can do. One of the most rewarding of all human undertakings is that of making a success of marriage and of rearing children in the manner acceptable to the Lord. It calls for the best in all of us. While many both in and out of the Church are eminently successful in rearing their families, it is clearly evident that there are fathers and mothers who are divesting themselves of the sacred obligation to counsel their children and to give them the parental warmth and interest that they deserve. Some parents are quite willing to let others tend and teach and train their most precious possessions, their children. Did you hear the timely admonition of our president and prophet this morning, pleading for fathers to take their rightful places at the heads of their households in righteousness? An authenticated study shows that two million children in America live in homes where serious trouble exists between parents. Six and a half million children live with only one parent, and another million have been formed out to relatives or friends or institutions. Some worthy institutions have been developed to help improve the home and family life. But helpful as these agencies may be, I am convinced, and I believe you will agree, that there is not and never will be a better place for improving the home than the home itself. Parents cannot, without regrettable consequences, shirk the responsibility of teaching and showing their children through their example the attributes of character that lead them unhesitatingly to appreciate the good, the decent, 
the beautiful and to help them to develop the desire and the courage to turn from that which is coarse or crude or wrong. To help us develop desirable qualities in our children, we are provided with divinely given programs such as the family home evenings. For the life of me, I can't understand why every ordinary family in the church doesn't grasp this opportunity. It costs nothing, and yet it is one of the most effective ways of cementing the unity of our families that has ever come to us. And when consistently used, it is proven to be a marvelous means to secure family life and to make it meaningful. Parenthood is a sacred trust. It is an approach to the divine, a God-given privilege which, with its never-ending responsibilities, brings rich and lasting rewards. President Joseph F. Smith once made this significant statement. The man and the woman who are agents in the province of God to bring living souls into the world are made before God and the heavens as responsible for their, the, the, these acts as is God himself responsible for the works of his own hand. A home approved of God is not merely a, a place where children are born, but where their coming is received with joy and gladness by parents who strive with all their abilities to help their children develop such attributes as faith in God, along with the desire to be obedient to his commandments, respect for and obedience for the laws of the land, where they develop in them a determination to be, be truthful and honest, regardless of the circumstances, and by teaching, mostly by example, unselfishness, along with courtesy, respect, refinement, and good manners, for surely they are part of our religion. After all, a sermon for a teenage child that proves itself most ample is still the one that parents teach by setting an example. Words by Hal Chadwick. Success in family life calls for parents who take time to enjoy their children, to enjoy their children, who read with them, who play with them, who let them participate in planning special occasions, seeking to make wholesome family traditions a proud part of family life. The case of a young man, the father of four children, who we called on to speak in the state conference in eastern Utah, emphasizes the desirability of family traditions, special occasions, and warm family relationships. On each anniversary of their marriage, this couple planned something special to do. Now they had looked forward as a family to observing the 10th anniversary. The father arranged his vacation to cover that period of time, but suddenly it became necessary for his wife to enter the hospital for surgery. 
he and the children felt sorry because she was in the hospital. At the same time, she was sad, thinking that her husband and the children would be disappointed. But when she read the little note that came with the bouquet of flowers, she felt better. For it read, Sweetheart, ten years without ten years without you, ten years with you, have seemed like ten days. But these ten days without you have seemed like ten years. Signed, Bill. Another essential in successful parenthood is for fathers and mothers to avoid disputations. Such situations may seem harmless to parents, but in the eyes of their children, the two most important people in, in the world are in conflict. And from their limited perspective, the whole world is in trouble. Situations thus created are an indication of immaturity and weakness on the part of those involved. Someone has said, one of the most important things a father can do for his children is to love and respect their mother. I plead with parents to rise above pettiness and to spare your children the inglorious and painful insecurity of having to endure petty disputations and situations. It is important to keep the avenues of communication open. It is wonderful when a father and a mother will sit down with a son or a daughter and discuss a personal problem. And they have their problems, which If we are wise, we will not minimize. There are pressures and enticements and even unjust accusations against which our sons and daughters need to be fortified. It is even more wonderful when, because of the love and the closeness that exists, the children feel no hesitancy in taking their problems to their parents. In such heart-to-heart -heart talks, parents will help to set objectives for their children, such as a desire and a determination to live clean, virtuous lives, a desire to associate with those who have their same high standards and ideals, a determination for the boys to live so that they may receive the priesthood in worthiness, and to prepare for and to be worthy to be called on mission perhaps establishing a savings account early in life for this purpose, a determination to gain an education, or to learn a trade or a profession, or to master a skill, and teach them the joy of working, to prepare them also to be worthy and desirable, desirous of marriage in the temple, doing things the Lord's way and to prepare themselves to become, in their own right, successful homemakers. We talk a good deal these days about security. My brothers and sisters, there is no security that we can give our children that is more essential, in my opinion, 
than the security they gain in homes where families operate as families should, according to the gospel of Jesus Christ, where families kneel and offer prayers of thanksgiving and gratitude at the beginning and at the close of each day, where keeping the commandments of God is a part of daily life. In this way, they become fortified and enabled to meet the future without frustration and without fear. Historians almost without exception point out that one of the greatest contributing factors in the downfall of nations is the disintegration of the home and family life. A complete rebirth of satisfactory family life is needed. It is needed even in the so-called better homes. It must begin with proper love and respect between the husband and the wife, and then by their example transferred to their children. No nation can long endure unless the great majority of its families and its homes are made secure through faith in God, an active living faith. In the Scouter's Minute I found these lines. So long as their homes, to which men can turn at close of day, so long as their homes where children are and mothers stay, if love and loyalty and faith be found across those sills, a stricken nation can recover from its gravest ill. So long as there are homes where fires burn and there is bread, I think that, is, that means homemade bread. <laughs> so long as there are homes where fires burn and there is bread, so long as there are homes where lamps are lit and prayers are said, although a people falter through the dark and nations grope, with God himself back of those homes, we still have hope. To this I testify in the name of Jesus Christ the Lord. Amen. I am both humbled and grateful, my brothers and sisters, for the confidence of the First Presidency and the Council of Twelve for the new assignment given me in the historical department of the Church. It is truly gratifying to be associated with men of the caliber of Leonard Arrington, the Church historian, and Earl Olson, the Church archivist, and Donald Smith, Church librarian, and the other brethren who have been called to assist. These are men of great spiritual devotion and have great capability in their respective fields. We shall seek the guidance of the Spirit of the Lord and the counsel and direction of the brethren in the important task that lies ahead of us. The association with the First Presidency and other leaders and with you, my brothers and sisters, at conference time is always a joy and a great spiritual influence. 
The plan for a useful and successful life is contained in the gospel of Jesus Christ, given to us by the Redeemer of mankind, whose atoning sacrifice augments the plan and makes it possible for us to return to the presence of God our Heavenly Father. When mortality or the second estate of man is completed, each individual will be prepared to continue his eternal journey into that place which the judgment of this life will place upon him. In this righteous but penetrating judgment, each of us shall go into the next estate of eternal existence for which we are best suited. The principles of progression or retardation judged by our behavior in the probation of mortality are realities of concept based upon revelation from God, both ancient and modern. In working out the plan of life and salvation down through the stream of time, men have developed among themselves period of obedience to God's holy laws and, on the other hand, periods of rebellion against these same laws. The declarations of the prophets of God contained in sacred historical writings tell of the changing conditions that have taken place among men. Clear reference is made to times of apostasy, when the rejection of truth has been so widespread that the holy priesthood of God, the channel through which God works in dealing with mankind, has been withdrawn from among men. Oscillating from these periods of spiritual darkness have been periods of enlightenment when the will of God has been revealed unto man and has to some extent been adhered to. These periods of enlightenment are known as dispensations of the gospel of Jesus Christ, times when God dispenses the wisdom of the eternities unto mankind for their benefit and blessing. Pure knowledge, meaning revelation from God, is greater than the limited reasoning of men. The method which God has chosen to convey his knowledge unto mankind is through his chosen prophets, unto whom he sends his messengers with divine instructions, and upon occasion by the majesty of his own appearance. Thus on the whole, as the pages of history are observed, noting the depressions and then again the periods of enlightenment that have held sway over mankind as they move through mortality, we come to know broadly that times of apostasy and times of restoration are two opposite poles of human existence. They are conditions between which mankind have oscillated as internal and external conditions bear sway. In the light of this concept, the gospel which Jesus Christ proclaimed during his earth life was not new. It was actually a restoration of the same truths which had been declared in former dispensations. He himself declared these truths unto ancient prophets who had been chosen as his instruments. He was known unto them as Jehovah and by that name gave commandments unto the children of Israel. He has directed the plan of salvation from the very beginning of mankind upon the earth, 
thereby establishing the dispensations of Adam, of Enoch, of Noah, of Moses, and others, all bearing witness to a restoration by the divine dispensing of truths, making known unto mankind the redeeming principles of the gospel. The willingness of God to dispense these truths unto mankind has ever been present, but there have been times when mankind, because of wickedness and rebellion, would not receive them. In the depths of rebellion and apostasy, the masses of people are never responsive to gospel truths. The reflected lack of the principles of freedom in governments and institutions stand as a stumbling block to the furtherance of God's work among men. When the darkness and evil of apostasy has dominated the minds of men, it has been fostered by the subjection of individual rights of freedom and unrighteous dominion, brought to bear by the institutions that men, of men that know not God. In these periods of darkness, the forces of evil, under the direction of the, of the evil one, the archenemy of Christ implements doctrines of force, destroying the rights of the individual, making it almost impossible for those held in subjection to have the opportunity of repentance and regeneration. Without the spirit of freedom and the power of agency, there can be no functioning of the principles that would lead us to the gospel. It is difficult, if at all possible, to come to a state of regeneration so vital to progression and the fulfillment of the gospel plan. The gospel of Jesus Christ will not flower or expand its influence under conditions where the will of the individual is suppressed. Those who have gained conviction of the truth and have then been thrust into a condition of individual bondage may survive the ordeal on the strength of the truths which they have previously found and individually accepted, as did the early Christian martyrs, or the martyrs in any age who have stood up to death rather than denounce the truths which they have taken unto themselves by the power of agency. But under godless systems, where the individual never comes to know the truth, he is held by darkness. From the Dark Ages, that period of time following the death of the apostles of the Lord, in the Meridian Dispensation, which continued for about 1,100 years, during which time there was no intelligent glorification of the individual. Hardly a painted picture emerged that portrayed this important concept. Everything was lost in relentless subjection of the masses to the evil power of unrighteous dominion. Then came that period known as the Renaissance which gave to men an inward longing for liberation of thought with the courage to face the evil forces which held them in subjection. Man again began to seek for freedom and truth. The master of men had said many years before, Ye shall know the truth, and the truth will make you free. But of this and other scripture these many years they had not even been privileged to read. But God began to work with men, and their hearts turned toward him, and whenever the spark of freedom was found, 
It was influenced and fed by the natural forces of agency. Soon the desire for freedom, matched with the courage to fight and die for it, spread among men. The question might well be asked, why does freedom need to be restored as a forerunner to a new dispensation of the gospel of Jesus Christ? The answer is a simple one. For well the Lord knows that without the spirit of freedom in the souls of men there could be no willing response to the gospel plan. For it is in the culture of freedom and the use of agency in that freedom that men come to know the difference between good and evil. This progress leads to the yearnings in the hearts of good men and eventually to gospel dispensations. This is the pattern to be noted down through the era of the historical writings. The continued longing for freedom led directly to a period known as the Reformation, which led to the foundation of America and the framing of the Constitution, concerning which the Lord has said, and I quote, According to the laws and the Constitution of the people, which I have suffered to be established, should be maintained for the rights and protection of all flesh, according to just and holy principles." End of quote. All of this in its proper order led directly to the greatest period in the experience of man upon the earth—a new dispensation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This period was foreseen and referred to by the Apostle Peter as the times of restitution or restoration of all things involving a new gospel dispensation. Here are his words as he speaks also of the coming of the Lord at this particular time. And again I quote, And he shall send Jesus Christ, which before was preached unto you, whom the heavens must receive until the times of restitution of all things which God has spoken of by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. The significant feature of the present dispensation was the inauguration of the same by the personal visitation of God the Father and His beloved Son, Jesus Christ, referred to in the sacred historical writings of this Church as the Sacred Grove Appearance, which occurred in the spring of 1820 near Palmyra, New York, 152 years ago. Upon this occasion, Joseph Smith became the first of the prophets of this new dispensation of the gospel, and by virtue of divine instruction given then and subsequent appearances of the Son of God and certain ancient prophets who hold keys of understanding pertaining to the gospel plan has caused to be established the kingdom of God upon earth that any of mankind may come unto it. The characteristics of this dispensation, as compared with other dispensations, is unique in that it is the last of all dispensations concerning which the Prophet Joseph Smith received this divine information as contained in a revelation, and I quote, Unto whom I have committed the keys of my kingdom and a dispensation of the gospel for the last times and for the fullness of times, in the which I will gather together in one all things, both which are in heaven and which are on earth. 
The Apostle Paul, writing unto the Ephesian saints, speaks also of this important final dispensation in connection with the inheritances that will come to the faithful. I quote what he said and must have seen in vision, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in him. A dispensation of the gospel of Jesus Christ is now established with prophets, seers, and revelators. The Church and kingdom of God has been established, and the inhabitants of the earth may receive it and be prepared for the days to come in which the Son of Man shall come down from heaven in the brightness of his glory to meet the kingdom of God which is set up upon the earth. Of these things I bear my personal witness, as conveyed to me by the power of the Spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.